No, I, I wasn't. It would have been great when you had the reaction of like, oh, like I got by 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 one big shot to the Portuguese Navy. It's like, what? Yeah, well, that wasn't a perfect time to do that. Mm. Bada boom. Well, welcome to the Geometrical Pivot Podcast. Um, Brian's here. Uh, for whatever reason. Daniel Clay. You so, bastard. I'm so glad to be back. <laughs> you, I thought you died, honestly. I thought I did too briefly, but you here know, we are. Here you turns, are. Turns out you can't kill a concept. <laughs> well, <laughs> alright. <laughs> and then... Oh, uh, Daniel Miko? He's new to the family. So we have two Dan's. So we have to figure out how to separate the two when they're both around. It's a Highlander. There can only be one. Oh, oh, well, there uh, we go. Dan A and Dan C. Easy peasy. Lemon squeezy. So my friend over here is amicable. Ah, uh, yeah. oh, Latin. I see what yeah. you did. <laughs> He's much better than Brian. Um, so today, <laughs> what, Brian? Oh, two-faced. What, what the hell? <laughs> Second. Uh, it doesn't even need to introduce himself a little bit more than just saying Dan and Nico. Nope. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> With that being said, um, we're going to talk about South America today, but more in particular, uh, Brian's over there rubbing his hands together. Uh, <laughs> um, we're talking about South America today, but more specifically, the Iranian presence operations and their schemes um and not just venezuela um, but also argentina um and since this is brian revis's kind of specialty i'm going to allow him for the most part to talk about both topics and then i'll chime in a little bit i'm pretty sure dan clegg will do the same um so that being said brian go ahead all right so which part am i starting are we talking about iran and venezuela first or are we talking about the uh, argentinian uh, Argentinian businesses, that's fair enough. Alright, this is going to be fun. So, last week, uh, it was reported that a plane owned by, I have it here, uh, by Entrosor, which is a, um, which is a airliner owned by the Venezuela, by Venezuela, um, that a plane from them recently landed in Buenos Aires, and when it was trying to leave and go to Uruguay, it, Uruguay denied them access in the airspace, and then back went. They went back into uh, Iziza Airport, which is the Buenos Aires airport. Um, they came back, and when the Argentinians came to go back to check the aircraft, they noticed a few peculiarities. Specifically, this was a cargo plane. The cargo planes usually have about five crew members at most, maybe seven. This one had about eighteen. Five Iranians. 13 Venezuelans. Also, this aircraft used to be owned by an airliner that was owned by Iran, and an airliner that was sanctioned by the United States as supplying weaponry to certain groups, uh, albeit Hezbollah or to Syria, or even supplying armaments to the Assad regime. And not only, and a bunch of other things, as well as the flight path that this aircraft took before leaving, uh, before arriving in Buenos Aires initially. They went to Cordoba, which is in the center of Argentina, and when they were flying from Cordoba to Buenos Aires, they turned off all their transponders and their trackers, mm. which creates a lot of red flags. 
minutes. So right now, that airplane is stuck in Buenos Aires Airport. The crew is not allowed to leave. And there is a huge investigation going on. And with that also, we've also had some reports that specifically they want to hold the Iranians still in Argentina. And they're checking on a few names because one of the names in there, I forgot the name exactly, did pop up in a registrar for Kuds Force. Which makes sense. We don't... And right now, the Argentinians are saying multiple different things. You have some people saying, oh, yeah, they're definitely Iranian intelligence. And then we have some parts of the government saying, oh, no, they're not. We're just doing a simple inspection. And the Argentinians are being very, um, they're being very vague. <laughs> you make that face like, um, what? They're very cagey. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're being very, very sketchy behaviors. They're being very vague and very cagey. And this, comes, and this comes the same weekend when Venezuela and Iran just signed a 20-year cooperation agreement between Now, what's in this 20-year cooperation agreement? Well, they, they highlight the tourism and the cultural exchange. Act. Also, defense works on defense cooperation. And I don't know if you paid a little bit more attention. That's all I got. Defense cooperation for what? Who's attacking Argentina? I'm confused. But then again, I'm not really confused because, as you know, Argentina and Iran have a very complicated history. Uh, um, I can go even further if you want. By all means. So, with Argentina and uh, Iran, uh, specifically, you have Hezbollah is active in parts of Argentina, specifically in the... uh, Crap, what is that province? I keep on forgetting. Either the Chaco, no, not Chaco, somewhere else. Basically, they're oper- they operate in the northwest, eastern part of the country, the area known as a tribal area between Paraguay, Brazil, and Argentina. Hezbollah operates in that area because of the, lar- of the large Muslim population there, as well as because um, administration and government functions are so are so weak over there, it's very easy for them to, uh, to go across borders as well as to do illicit activities. It's considered one of the major hubs for such and a huge, huge cash cow for Hezbollah. And Hezbollah acts a lot in Argentina. For example, in the 1990s, they did the Amiya bombings, which attacked a Jewish center in Buenos Aires as well as a, I think it was the Jewish, the Israeli embassy. This was in the 90s from Hezbollah. And there's already, and there's some rumors going around, and we could have had, sorry, there's some rumors that the Argentine government knew about these attacks and they didn't do anything about them. Maybe even complicit in some form for oil concessions from Iran. Because Iran is active with Hezbollah in in Argentina as well. Mm -hmm. But you know, that makes sense, that's interesting because, um, we just talked about the the twenty year, uh, co-op, the new twenty year cooperation plan between Iran and Venezuela. Um, it allows Iran to continue utilizing um, essentially ter- aircrafts operated by allied nations rather than Iranian um, based aircrafts in order for them to transport illicit goods, IRGC goods force, etc., um, to and from South America. Um, that also provides an umbrella for Hezbollah operations in the area as well. Um, you brought up the tri-border area, um, and a lot of times, when, and people often like to speculate on how could Hezbollah be reined in and essentially contained, and my answer has always been, well, if you want to target Hezbollah, um, yeah, you can target them in the Middle East, but that's not where the cash cow is. 
uh, it's South America, whether it's in Venezuela and the Margarita Islands, um, we are wrapped in tourism and hotels, so on and so forth, uh, which is an island they utilize for um, training, um, as well as the usage of you know, uh, Venezuelan passports in order to get to and from Iran. Uh, the tri-border area when it comes to black market operations, whether that's um, weapon trafficking, drug trafficking, human trafficking, um, literally exploiting the, the Lebanese diaspora that's been there since the, the second Lebanese civil war. Actually, it's even farther back. Lebanese, well, in all of Latin America in general, there's been a Lebanese diaspora in Latin America. Since the 50s? No, since the 1800s. Why? Because during the time when there was mass European immigration and during the 1800s, a lot of went to, a lot of Lebanese surprisingly went to Latin America, specifically Argentina. Interesting. Also Venezuela, but that's a different story. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the the historical precedents that Iran has um, in the region shouldn't be underscored um, simply because of now the, the Venezuelan regime under Maduro, where now it's an open secret that Iranian um, presence, not even just economic or energy, but now even security-wise, um, whether that's with, through the proxies like Hezbollah or even IRGC operations, um, it's very apparent. Um, now in Argentina, uh, there is some history there um, due to not just the area areas for operations, uh, but also Iran has an interesting strategy um, where they try to coordinate relations with, let's say, the, the sovereign government, but then they'll also provide support to grassroots organizations operating for the long-term uh, strategic goal that hopefully one of these groups that they uh, that they assist with, they finance, provide training, whatever the case may be, they'll be able to become a social force, uh, which is kind of a, a, a double-pronged operation where, okay, I'll coordinate with the government, but if, you, if I, I in Iran want to essentially expand influence beyond the scope of government, it would be to support local organizations, uh, which is how Iran was able to supplant its influence locally within the tri-border area, not just through the Lebanese population, but through the Muslim population in general, um, helping establish social service programs, um, creating new mosques, um, but also just the sheer presence of whether it's Shia or Sunni. Um, Islam, uh, Iran is in a point where they don't necessarily prohibit themselves from coordinating with Sunni organizations because they do it, Hamas. Um, and Iran potentially has done it as well for Al-Qaeda um, in Afghanistan, but also in the degree in Somalia. It seems like a lot of Iran's recent strategic development is less focused on the sort of traditionalist uh, religious aspirations and more focused on legitimate global geopolitical aspirations. I mean, if you look at how much they're um, you know, pushing to advance their military capabilities, uh, their nuclear weapons development, I believe, was at 60%. Last report came out, they need to reach 90% to be able to build viable nuclear weapons. And, you know, even now, they're actively planning to carry out attacks against Israeli citizens in Istanbul. Um, you know, the, 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 the guardrails are kind of off, and the uh, escalation between Israel and Iran in the region is accelerating at such a pace that, you know, I really would not be surprised at seeing a, um, 
Cold War kind of go hot with them in the region um, as soon as Iran is able to really kind of get its act together in terms of access to the weapons that they want to be able to utilize. Which makes sense. I mean, um, as we've seen how Iran established in their own way um, any excess aerial denial across the Middle East utilizing proxies um, in various countries. But we can see essentially Iran taking that same framework but just multiplying and duplicating it essentially in South America now. Uh, where, you know, go to, go to war directly with Iran, that war is not going to be contained just in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, and well, it's, it's not going to be the Iranian military. It's the IRG puts force plus their proxies in the Middle East, in some cases in Africa, um, in South America. So um, I see this essentially as a, in a way it's interesting, how Iran has crafted some sort of a, Containment, uh, an attempt at a containment strategy similar to America's containment strategy to the Soviet Union, but in this way, it's based in an asymmetric, um, cost, much more cost-efficient, depending on how you look at it, um, structure um, that essentially, I mean, it's working. If you look at their relations with Cuba, Venezuela, potentially where the Colombian election might go, um, it was with Petro. Petro, uh, Petro um, who is sympathetic to Maduro, um, if, especially now after Biden declared Colombia a strategic non-NATO partner, if Petro were to become uh, president, then what does that mean uh, for not just communistic groups within Colombia that didn't um, sign on to peace accords, but now Maduro, um, Iran, Cuba, um, Argentina, per se, with Iran's uh, history of their relationship. Um, but what does that essentially now mean for the underbelly of the United States? Uh, where it's known for IRGC operatives to get as far as the southern border in some cases. Um, some of them may have died, but to, just to get there in, in itself is a national security problem. Well, what would be very interesting to me is seeing... Maybe I'm going a little bit over the top on this idea, but if Iran would be involved in what's been going on border between Colombia and Venezuela, because for those who don't know, you have in the a region called the Arafka region, there's been some fighting between uh, between rival um, rebel groups, one known as the ELN, uh, and the other one known as well, the dissidents from FARC. Of course, as I'm not <laughs> but, uh, no, and it's the other thing I've discovered recently was um, with that also with how Venezuela is used. Venezuela is used as a as a hub for transporting drugs from Venezuela going up north to the United States. And the one thing I actually just got discovered as of May this year was now Venezuela is considered the fourth cocaine producing nation in all in all South America. There's only Three others, which is Colombia, Peru, and Bolivia. So I'm wondering. Right now, I hear supposedly all these all these production facilities are owned by the ELN, which operate is operating Venezuela. But I wonder if Hezbollah try to tap into that market as well. If we can back up and zoom out for just a minute, um, you know, looking at the way that conflict and our understanding of conflict has shifted in just the last two decades, yeah. you know, really the Cold War anticipation, you know, the Red Dawn, the you know, the enemy coming over the uh, side of the, um, you know, the, the the side of the country with helicopters and paratroopers and all that. I mean, that I think largely is on the out now. 
um, as a global geostrategic policy. I mean, what you can gain with much smaller, more nimble forces operating clandestinely behind enemy lines, um, not just targeting political targets, but going after corporate targets or to create influence within um, within business, within industries, within uh, trade in order to, um, you know, if, if you look at the major commodities that are going to be defining who uh, who survives and who does not um, with, the glowing with the growing climate crisis, hopefully not glowing anytime soon. Um, and the, you know, I mean, we're looking at uh, water is going to become a major resource the countries are going to be fighting over clean water. Mm -hmm. um, it's already plenty of places where we don't have access to that to the, to the degree that we should. Um, you know, gasoline, natural gas, um, energy resources in general, um, rare earth elements, processes that can be used for development of computing technology, which is exploding and is going to continue to explode at an exponential rate. I mean, those are the resources. And given that most of those resources at this point are controlled by corporations and shell corporations, I think that we're going to have to anticipate that the future of many of these conflicts may not be, you know, one country with a giant standing army invades another country, but one country sends its operatives in, takes out somebody who is not on their intelligence payroll, who's connected to a corporation or a country or an industry, um, and then puts in somebody who is on their payroll, who's able to get back better access or make that deal or make that cut to get access to the resource that they need or want for their own purposes. So Latin America might be more interesting just because a lot of company, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, government ownership of certain, of like certain strategic resources. For example, you have Chile or copper, you have Ecuador and, hell, you can go to Ecuador and Venezuela when it comes to yeah. oil. And then you can even, yeah, same for Brazil. I think if Iran is able to make more deals with other countries, they'd be able to get more of that influence within some of those government-owned companies as well as government-owned structures, especially with Venezuela in this case, because you have two large oil producers. If they're able to make their own little block, you they can they can probably yeah. try to rival OPEC. I mean, cuts force IRGC, they're not gonna shake a stick out on the tactical level either. I mean, it doesn't matter if you have the most powerful military on Earth or the most powerful satellites on Earth. If a special operations unit from another country is able to slip under your border in the dead of night and you know walk into a congressman's house while he's walking his dog and blow his brains out because he doesn't agree with policy, which you know hasn't isn't something that's happened yet, but um, it's the kind of thing that as we're looking at Iran's operating capability, their ability to access South America, develop alliances, and get access to potentially the United States on a clandestine level, you know it's going to matter less if they're able to reach out and touch us militarily if they're able to do it clandestinely operationally, you know? No, exactly. I get what you mean. Great. What do you think, Dan? Uh, so my, uh, I would say my region specialty is neither Iran uh, nor, nor <laughs> South America, but it's a fascinating conversation. Uh, and the, uh, to, uh, to others' point, the asymmetrical warfare capacities that, that are opened up by having uh, such a gap, such such a uh, blindness, uh, really, if if Iran is not deterred, why wouldn't they? Yeah. Right? If we don't maintain a deterrence relationship, understand what their values are and what deters them operationally and you know, yeah. their leadership from taking actions such as you described. Yeah, and we we have to consider deterrence in general. I think. I mean, if we look at you know the the, the recent. The, the biggest geopolitical news, I think, of the earlier part of this year, the war in Ukraine, Iran, China, North Korea, all these other countries that have 
have the capacity to operate as rogue states in the past are looking at Russia and they're saying, what are we going to? What are they going to do about that? How bad is it going to be for them? And if it's not that bad, how bad would it be for me if I did something similar? And they, but they don't just have to look at that. Many people looked at that situation and had the assessment of, you know, oh, this is going to give those rogue states that excuse. But that excuse has been, or that excuse and other excuses for this kind of operational activity have been, you know, just thrown out the window for the last 20 years repeatedly. I mean, you look at the success of rogue terror organizations carrying out these attacks, um, you know, sure, many of them are getting hit, but then when a state actor does it, when a state actor drops polonium in somebody's teeth, or pushes somebody out a window, or, you know, beats to death a former major TV uh, editor in the middle of Washington, D.C. apartment while under FBI protection, all things which have been conducted by a certain uh, state-sponsored actor, all things which were well, moves pretty much unopposed, and things which, up until very, very recently, at least as I understand it, um, intelligence forces who had to go up against that kind of threat on the Western side were more or less told, stand down, we're still going to be gentlemen. Yeah, I mean, one of the best ways to you know, engage in uh, you know, counter counterintelligence like that is to just make sure that the other the other nation state actors are uh, and the leadership there are deterred politically from attempting uh, such things or that uh, it's uh, seen as according unacceptable risk and it's I mean, it's, it's the most uncontroversial and obvious thing to say but one of the most grossest failures of deterrence recently is as we just said the um, situation in Ukraine yeah I mean I think that one of the greatest deterrences that I've seen in terms of Russian forces who have, before now, acted and operated with impunity in various countries where they conducted covert operations, is that in the specific instance where they're trying to now do those actions in Ukraine, they're encountering um, one of the most effective cures to fascism that I've experienced in my own lifetime, uh, the 5x56 caliber bullet. Um, you know, frankly, when these, when these operators are met with the kind of force that they're not expecting from a polite, friendly Western nation when they try to conduct their clandestine activities, um, you know, that's going to create a problem for them. And of course, the counter-argument to that would be, well, if we start fighting back more aggressively against this kind of covert activity, against the Russians, against the Iranians, against the Chinese, you know, if we start playing some of the dirty games um, in order to fight back, you know, what if they step that up? What if our own officers become targets of attacks. It's like, well, they already have been in many ways. Um, there were bounties on the heads of US troops. Um, a GCHQ analyst was found folded inside of a suitcase in the UK, and the Metropolitan Police were brought out to investigate it for years because he got too close to Russian money. Um, intelligence officers and intelligence personnel and analysts have already been the targets of these kind of attacks and of these kind of operations for decades now, um, violently. You know, I mean, they've been the primary targets of a lot of terrorist attacks. Um, if we are not willing to give our intelligence professionals the opportunity to protect themselves against these attacks, and for that self-defense and that protection to be a deterrent against further covert action on a smaller, on the individual level, um, you know, then probably those attacks are just going to continue or get worse or intensify, especially looking at Iran and uh, South America. That's a good reason. Yeah, no, that's a pretty good reason. Um, so, I mean, at this point, we can only really see what comes out. If anything comes out, out of this, as we know, we're dealing with a Venezuelan, an Iranian, um, Iranian use Venezuelan aircraft and 
knowing that Argentina, as we know, Argentina is not the best regarding um, government publicized information. Juan Perón. <laughs> yeah, you really want me to start going. No, um, a great place to go if you got away with some war crimes and need to let over. Yeah, though. you know, <laughs> casual. You've been there. 1944, 45, 49, etc. Um, but you know, it's just it's it's fascinating to see the 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 inner operations of Iranian statecraft uh, operating in, in South America. Um, especially another thing, knowing that Islam is a rising religion in Latin America. Um, if you even look at percentages in Mexico. Um, they call it. They call them the Aztec Muslims. Um, I don't know if that's derogatory or not. That feels pretty horrible saying that. But you know, it's the fact that if you look at Islamic trends in South America, it is on the rise. However, then what does that mean uh, potentially for a nation like Iran, who is known to invest in grassroots development organizations and wait the waiting game? I mean, they did with Hezbollah. Did Iran think that Hezbollah would eventually become part of the of the, the Lebanese state apparatus? Probably not. Um, and now look at the whole situation. Iran, Hezbollah is at the point where they're actually able to provide more more money to their members um, than the Lebanese state can. Um, they're pro- they're able to provide social programs that Lebanon is not able to provide right now. The Muslim Brotherhood did the same thing in Egypt, and they still do. Um, as I said in a previous episode, Syed Qutb, one of the um, individuals of the Muslim Brotherhood, who's the founding father of modern jihadist uh, principles, um, the the Islamic the Islamic Brotherhood, they spearheaded the notions of essentially creating a terrorist organization in the form of a social services comp- uh, entity. Where if you label the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization, then technically you're labeling all of their social programs that poor Egyptians depend on as a terrorist organization. Yeah. Is that is that a, it's a real moral dilemma? a moral dilemma because like yeah, you killed Anwar Sadat <laughs> literally on TV at a parade, but yet you also provide social programs that help alleviate poverty for Egyptians. Mm-hmm. Do we want to label you and everything that you do as a terrorist organization? That's where the moral, the ethical, and even statecraft um, ethics come into play. Same thing can then be said with Iran and Hezbollah. Hezbollah operates in South America for nefarious reasons, illicit, dangerous reasons. But back in Lebanon, same thing for Hamas. They provide social services that Lebanese people, Palestinians, etc., depend on on a daily basis. It never ceases to amaze me how frequently you see this overlap between the need to alleviate the basic and general social struggles and woes on a society, societal and international level, how often that interweaves with the most major uh, geopolitical and national security struggles that we face. I mean, when you look at, um, you know, the vast majority of violent crime in the United States, and I think that this came out of one of our reports recently, is associated with 
crime of necessity or crime that is associated with mental health, with people who are going through mental health crisis um, because they don't have access to programs that can alleviate that. Uh, you look at the majority of crime that occurs in other countries, um, you know, and especially when you look at, uh, I feel like so often we make comparisons to like northern and central European countries and say like, oh, well, this country has a lot less crime than the United States. And it's like, well, clearly it's because they've gotten rid of the guns or they've gotten rid of the knives or they've gotten rid of the scissors and they've gotten rid of the, you know, sharpened kitchen knives or whatever. But it's like, well, no. They provide significant social programs that alleviate many of the pressures and the stressors that drive people to join criminal organizations, to join terror organizations, to commit crime. When you don't provide a way for people to protect themselves, in many cases, they're going to be much more susceptible to anyone who's offering them protection. Or the state owns the criminal organizations. And in that way, crime does happen because you stepped out of line. Um, therefore, they also are able to manipulate and exploit the criminal reportings. Because mm -hmm. if I own uh, the, the criminal enterprises, if the state owns these, you know, the state sponsor criminal enterprises, I'm not going to report the crime that they do. Um, I'm only going to report the crimes that happen that are against those that are against the state. And yeah. because, you, because you, the state, are not front face of said crime, then it doesn't matter. Um, it's just more so now that I'm look at Putin and Russia and the and the, the mobs. Yeah. And, oh, the yeah. Rambo over there. Right. One thing I actually want to bring up. Sorry, yeah. there um, Well, you guys are talking about groups, and I kind of want to dial back to when you guys were talking about Iran supporting grassroots groups. Obviously, we were talking about this in terms of more criminal organizations or terrorist organizations. But what if they supported political groups? To Iran. Because yeah. they do. Well, <laughs> well, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about this in Latin, going back to Latin America. Well, yeah, no, they um, it's it's tricky how Iran operates. Not necessarily tricky. Iran will cooperate regardless with any political party that may be in charge of a government in South America. They don't care. Um, not, not that they don't care, but what they do is, is essentially they sit back and they evaluate um, elections, policies, etc., and then from there. They will construct their their outreach um, diplomatic initiative with said government, but that's not their goal. That put whoever whichever political party that wins is not their main goal. Their goal is access to the civil society of a South American country. It's to get into the public programs, the social welfare programs, the grassroots programs. It's to get into if they have an Islamic um, percentage. Minority or majority, or even medium, they want to get access into those nations. Hence, why Hezbollah is a key, it's a, a key factor in this. Iran can only do but so much and get away with it as a sovereign nation when it comes to diplomacy. But if Iran is able to send IRG Quds forces um, under the guise of tourism, if they're able to uh, get into your civil society through cultural exchanges. Um, expanding their media um, companies, which is state-sponsored. Um, if they're able to um, coordinate uh, religious exchanges to get into your society and then progressively build upon that, then that's their main goal. You know, and that's what I'm trying to, that's sort of what I'm trying to get out of that is, say they have these cultural exchanges, they have all this, maybe even they convince a few people to emigrate to foreign countries. Yeah. My thing is, in more stable countries in Latin America, for i.e., maybe Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, etc., 
they try to make specific groups that go for specific policies. I'm talking about lobby groups. I'm talking about um, I'm talking about um, groups that they can control to get certain policy through government as well as to influence the populations there. I can see that happening in certain countries. For example, you, it definitely Venezuela doesn't fucking matter here. I have it here. Iran has it here. But like you can work in Bolivia. It could work in Argentina. It yep. could work in it could work in Paraguay, Peru, and especially Brazil, where there's a huge population in general. Like I can, what I see generally is they will try, they'll try to use some of these groups in more of the areas where it does matter, like specifically where there's stronger democracies, mm-hmm. and they would, especially they try to gain the influence of parties that are more attuned with their with their beliefs or their actions, for example, the Peronists in Argentina, or you could look at some leftist groups like uh, Lula da Silva in uh, Brazil. Mm-hmm. Like that's the thing I'm curious about is if they figure out other ways besides just violence to mm-hmm. seep further into societies, especially Latin America, where they do have immigrant populations, either Muslim or Iranian or Lebanese, whatever. Well, Iran also understands that they can't be overtly violent in South America, especially since not only that Iran is working on a religious minority in South America, um, but also differences in cultural um, beliefs. Um, so Iran, if they were to commit to violence, um, i.e., was it the bombing of the Jewish... Uh, Amiya bombings. Right. Um, was committed by Hezbollah. Um, mm-hmm. It's to remain covert, um, but also prior to that is to sustain diplomatic connections and pressure onto the host country to not reveal if they know that Iran was behind it. And how does Iran do it? Energy deals, um, tourism deals, um, increased trade deals. It might even um, be pressuring assassinations. I'm talking about, um, in Argentina, there's a guy named Nisman who was a lawyer, and he, a prosecutor, and he was actually doing an investigation to get me bombings and government involvement in that. The day before he was supposed to present his research, he was dead. Yeah, he was killed. It's already been ruled as a, as a homicide. We just don't know who's done it yet, and the government's dragging uh, their feet right now. Quote unquote, we don't know who did it. Um, but anyway, we've been talking for 35 minutes, but we're definitely going to do a part two on this. Um, a lot of fascinating um, things being unraveled with Iran and South America, um, but we'll definitely keep our eyes on um, the whole Argentinian situation as well as this new 20 year partnership between Venezuela and Iran. Um, with that being said, um, God bless. Much love. Take care.